Are you looking for a podcast that your whole family can enjoy that asks the deep philosophical questions like, do trees fart? If you are, then you'll love Tumble, a science podcast for kids. I'm Lindsay. And I'm Marshall. Join us as we explore stories of science discovery, from butts to animals, dinosaurs, astronomy, and everything in between. You'll love these stories, and you'll learn something new. Find and follow Tumble Science Podcast for Kids wherever you get your podcasts, or at sciencepodcastforkids.com. Soundsington Media! Hey, Brian, if you were in space right now and could call someone to say hello, who would you call? Over. Hey, Meredith, I gotta say I would call you. I'd be like, Meredith, I'm in space. I don't know how I got here. What about you? Over. Uh, well, if if you're not with me, I would call you, but I would assume that you'd be with me. Um, and then I'd call my dad. Over. Also, why are we ending our sentences with the word over? Over. I was wondering the same thing. Maybe it has something to do with the way people communicate when they're in space. Over. Well, did you know that the ability to work together is a key element of exploring space? Over. And did you know that for every one person who goes to space, there are tens of thousands of people on Earth working together to make sure their mission is a success? Over. I'm Meredith Stepien. Over. And I'm Brian Holden. Over. And this is Reach, a space podcast for kids. Welcome to Reach, a space podcast for kids. You know, Brian, if we go to space, I'd definitely invite a few friends to join us. Totally. I mean, if we could invite anyone to join us in space, I'd actually probably invite Nick Lake, who was on the show a few weeks ago, because he, like, knows all the constellations. He'd be able to help us find our way around. Ooh, good answer. He's also really good at puzzles. Okay, yeah, that could definitely come in handy. So this inspired us to ask our listeners, if you could go to space with anyone in the world, who would it be and why? Here's what our interstellar callers had to say. Hi, my name is Blythe, and if I could take one person to space, it would probably be one of my friends because they calm me down if something wrong would happen. My name is Merrick. I would go with my three turtles, the first turtles that would ever be in space. Ooh, really smart with the turtles. I heard turtles are really good at working together. And they don't even need a spacesuit. They can just go inside their shell, right? Yeah, those are sealed, right? Yeah. It's fun to think about going to space with your friends, because you know you'd work well with them. And a big part of space exploration, whether you're actually going to space as an astronaut or supporting the astronauts from the Earth, is working together as a team, like turtles. Well, we got really lucky this week on Reach because Shannon Wetzel, curator at the Cosmosphere International Science Center and Space Museum, joined us to talk about that very topic. Amazing. Over. Oh, I think we stopped saying over. Brian, are you done talking? I really can't tell. Over. Fine. Over. Thank you. Over. Shannon, thank you so much for joining us here on Reach. How are you doing today? Thank you for having me. I'm wonderful. Thank you. So to start things off for our listeners, maybe you could tell us a little bit about who you are and what you do. Well, my name is Shannon Wetzel, and I'm the curator here at the Cosmosphere in Hutchinson, Kansas. That's great. All right. So let me ask you about that word, curator. Maybe you could tell me about uh, what it's like to be a curator at a space and science museum. 
Well, most importantly, a curator is the coolest job at any museum. So oh. I'm very fortunate to have the coolest job here at the Cosmosphere. Anything that has to do with artifacts in the museum involves the curator. So if that means we're letting another institution borrow artifacts, if our artifacts are going on exhibit, um, just making sure that our artifacts are properly taken care of. So anything to do with artifacts comes through the curator and the collections department. I understand that you have a very large artifact collection. Yes, yes, we do have. We have about 14,000 artifacts, which a lot of people are surprised to know because really what you see on display and even what you see on loan at other museums really accounts for about 7% of our collection. What, what is your collection comprised of? Our collection is comprised of, oh, it just anything. And I always say we love all of our artifacts equally, but we, we have from the tiniest nuts and bolts that were saved from a restoration all the way up to spacecraft that actually went to space. That's cool. So you're dealing with and, uh, and preserving and keeping safe and putting on public display a lot of the physical objects that are involved in space exploration. That is a, an excellent way of putting it, yes. <laughs> now, I know with space exploration, a lot of times we do focus on like um, science and engineering, the physical task of, of getting out into space. And that takes a lot of people to accomplish those feats. So why does it take so many people to do that stuff? You know, we hear about like Neil Armstrong, these sort of like figureheads and icons in the, in the space world, but there are a lot of people behind the scenes working as well. It's funny that you mentioned Neil Armstrong because uh, among all the astronauts, but especially Neil Armstrong, he was always so careful to make sure the public remembered how many people were behind getting a couple people to the moon. And there are so many aspects of going to the moon beyond going to the moon, if that makes sense. Mm. Um, someone had to sew the spacesuits. Someone had to provide support to the astronauts after they got back home. Someone had to monitor the astronauts' heart rates and their physiological health while they were up there. So going to the moon took scientists, mechanics, pilots, divers, seamstresses. I found a stat that said that going to the moon took about 400,000 workers across the U.S. Oh my goodness. That is amazing to think about. Yeah, it's, it it's almost like every part of our society was involved in the effort to, to get people to the moon or to anywhere in space. Just as a side note, I know that when Neil Armstrong and, uh, and any astronauts that were out exploring space, especially touching down on the moon in those early days, this kind of relates to our current situation, they actually had to quarantine when they came back to Earth, right? It's kind of funny to think of now. Um, I'm of the generation who has always, we've always had a presence in space, so it's kind mm. of hard to imagine that time when it was so new. Everything was new and you had to figure out a way to get there and, and worrying about what they're going to be exposed to and then what are they bringing back. So yes, they did quarantine because there was some concern about bringing back even small microbes from the moon that could destroy Earth's environment or uh, affect humans and cause some sort of outbreak. So um, uh, we now know that it's okay, but at yeah. the time they didn't. Let me ask you about talking to people when they're out in space. I, I You know, we talked about there's 400,000 people involved in the process. And so 
that's a lot of people, you know, helping to make the things that get people into space. But we know from some of our other episodes that there's a lot of people working on the missions even as they're occurring. So how do we actually talk to people when they're out in space? Pretty much after, right after the launch, mission control takes over mm. in terms of communicating with the astronauts. What exactly is mission control? Can you define that for our listeners? I can. You know, when I think of mission control, I always think of ground control from that song. What is that song yeah. by uh, David Bowie? I always think yeah. of ground control. Ground, ground control to major right. Tom. <laughs> That's right. Um, so they are the facility on the ground that communicates with the astronauts and monitors the mission. So in the U.S., they take over shortly after launch and monitor the mission until landing. But there are other mission control centers, not just in the U.S. There are also mission controls in India, Russia, Europe, and China. They all have their own, too. So when it comes to space exploration, why is teamwork so important, do you think? Teamwork is so important because it can become life and death very quickly for those astronauts. Not just teamwork. I would say, I would argue that communication is a part of teamwork. And when you're hundreds of thousands of miles apart, communication becomes so important if there's an issue with the craft or just passing along that information that could become a life or death situation. So what are the challenges of communicating with people in space? Communication between the astronauts and the ground takes place through radio waves. So in the, in the Apollo era, they had separate tracking stations. So as the craft got in and out of range, it would come down to the tracking station in Australia is tracking it and the tracking station in another place is tracking it. That's right, because as the Earth spins, you know, if they're mainly communicating with Houston at mission control, Sometimes Houston will be on the other, you know, like on the other side of the world uh, right. than, than they are. Or I should say the world will have turned away from them. In exactly. Space. So a lot of our listeners probably know about Apollo 11. We've talked about it a little bit. Neil Armstrong took the first steps on the moon. But some of them may or may not know about Apollo 13, a mission that almost made it to uh, landing on the moon, but yeah. came up a little bit short. Can you... Tell us about that. I've heard you have a cool story to share with us. Yes, Apollo 13 is near and dear to our heart here at the Cosmosphere because we have the actual Odyssey spacecraft here on display. Really? So we especially love the story of Apollo 13, and I guess I'll just get right into it. It was <laughs> supposed to be the third mission to the moon, but on their way to the moon, the tank in their service module exploded. And um, what was a mission to the moon became a mission of survival. At first, it was more of a disappointment. Uh, we've had this, this issue and now we can't go to the moon. And then it became more of a, we've had this issue and we don't know if you're going to have enough oxygen or it became life and death very quickly, I think. They were in the command module and this issue occurred and they had to move into the lunar module to use as their lifeboat is what they called it. So the lunar module, which was only supposed to support two men on the moon for a very short amount of time, now became the lifeboat for three men for several days as they, they call it was a slingshot move around the moon. So even though this accident happened, I think it was about 56 hours into the mission, they still had to fly all the way to the moon, 
go around the moon and then use that gravitation, the pull to slingshot back to earth. So wow. that's, that's something that always strikes me about the story is here you have this issue. And to me, I would be like, all right, turn it around. We're going home. But instead <laughs> they had to keep going, uh, not knowing if they were going to make it back. So very harrowing. You talk about heroes and mm. uh, remaining cool under pressure. It was definitely these guys. So they used their lunar lander as a lifeboat. And with the help of mission control, the astronauts made it home. So I'm spoiling the ending here. They're safe. <laughs> they made it back. NASA deemed this mission a successful failure because they did not meet their mission objectives. It was a failure. They were supposed to go to the moon and they had another uh, other scientific um, objectives while they were there. So that was the failure part. But here they were truly tested to see if they could bring some astronauts back home under this situation and they did so it was a success so there's when you hear the successful failure of Apollo 13 and it's not just you know it's not the the astronauts themselves were heroes but it wasn't just them it was the people on the ground right because suddenly all those people at mission control all the people I, I imagine they pulled in all the resources they could to try and, and fix the problem on board the spacecraft to bring these guys home. They're the heroes as well. Absolutely, mission control and even um, the contractors. So Grumman had some people there and just, yeah, they brought everybody in to try and figure out what can this craft do? What can it not do? How can we help these guys make it back? And again, providing little things like oxygen. There's the famous story from this mission that is often referred to as the square peg round hole. Obviously, when any of us breathe, we breathe in oxygen and exhale carbon dioxide. So in that small space, carbon dioxide became a huge issue because the command module where they were originally going to spend most of their time, they had plenty of what they called scrubbers. More or less, these were what I would call a filter. It filters out the CO2. So the command module had square scrubbers and the lunar module where they were now spending all of their time, which was not meant to support that many people for that amount of time, only had the round scrubbers. So here they are with plenty of square and no round. And through the teamwork of mission control and these contractors and the astronauts, they were able to take the, um, using nothing but what the astronauts had in the spacecraft, they were able to create this, um, I think they called it a mailbox. It looked like a mailbox. They would more, they got the square one to filter out that carbon dioxide and were able to solve that problem. Communication was so important. No, they didn't just create that, but then Capcom, the person who was responsible for speaking directly to the astronauts, had to relay that. This is how you build it. This is what you're going to need. And again, hundreds of thousands of miles apart. So mm. kudos to him. He must have explained it very well because it did work. Especially when time is a factor like that, you know, you have to speak very concisely and make sure that you're getting that info across so that they can understand. And right, exactly. not to mention once CO2 starts to build up, you start to lose your cognitive ability. I want to ask you about your perspective as a, as a curator with some of these incredible um, artifacts and spacecraft. I worked at the Adler Planetarium in Chicago for a little while. They have a Gemini spacecraft and I was so in awe of how small it was mm. and just like you could see the the burns on the heat shield from when it re-entered the atmosphere so when you saw that apollo 13 odyssey space capsule 
What, what struck you about it? What was your reaction to seeing that? Well, at the time, I believe I was on one of my first tours, probably the very first one, and someone said, this is a much larger spacecraft than what the original Seven had. It, it is strange to look at it and to be like, wow, people actually lived in there for a short time. And the heat shields, when you look at them, you can see the point of impact. And then the, wow. the rings come out from there. It's almost like art, especially for someone without that uh, engineering science background. That's about mm. all. I, it's like art to me. It's beautiful almost. So what got you interested in being a curator at a science and space exploration museum? Well, that is one of the coolest things about my job is that I do not have a space background. I have mm -hmm. a background in public history, but also a lot of turn of the century women's history. Mm. So, um, but the cool thing is, is I get to learn something new every single day. So if you were to give some advice to some of our younger listeners, you know, this is a space podcast for kids after all, what would you tell them about pursuing a career either in space exploration or in a career as a curator at a space museum or otherwise? There are so many different professions that are needed in the space program. So I would say it's as simple as following your passion and just keeping an eye on what, what's happening in the space program or what's going on and following your dream that way. In terms of being a curator, I spent a lot of time volunteering in museums while, while pursuing my degrees. The hands-on experience is really going to set you apart from other people. Thanks so much. Well, thank you for being here with us. Yes, thank it. you. Thanks so much to Shannon Wetzel for joining us. I knew working together in space was really important, but it's amazing how important it is to solve problems really quickly. Wait, did you say quickly? Yeah, why? This reminds me, Mercury, the planet closest to our sun, stopped by earlier to say hello on this week's installment of Did You Know? That guy is fast. He's also a really good singer. Did you know that? I didn't. Hey, Mercury, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. Did you know that? I get my name from Mercury, the fastest of the ancient Roman gods, which is fitting because I am the fastest planet and zip around the sun every 88 days. 88 days? Also, I am the planet closest to the sun, and the sun is 11 times brighter here than it is on Earth. Wow, the sun is 11 times brighter? That's bright. From my surface, the sun would appear more than three times as large as it does when viewed from Earth. I am also the smallest planet in the solar system and only slightly larger than Earth's moon. So, Mercury, what is it like being you? I'll tell you what it's like being me. I don't have moons and I don't have rings. It may seem like I don't have anything. I'm small and wrinkled with low bait scarves, but before you get to weeping from a broken heart, there's something I want you to know. I'm hot and fast, I'm built for speed. Every 88 days is New Year's Eve, yeah. I'm hot and fast, I'm built for speed. 88 
38 days like I'm piano keys. Yes, it. Who needs moons? Who needs rings? When you're named for a god, you get oh bling bling. Yeah, who needs moons? Who needs rings? I'm hot and fast and I can sing. I go. Well, thanks for your time, Mercury. We'd love to ask you to stick around, but know that you literally have to go. Hey, Brian. Remember last week when we learned all about skywatching from Nick Lake, our friend at the Adler Planetarium? Yeah, that was fantastic. I've been looking at the stars, but I was thinking about getting a telescope one of these days. I'm listening. Well, what would you think if we built our own telescope? Wait, we can do that? We can. All we need is a pair of magnifying glasses, a cardboard tube, some duct tape, a pair of scissors, a ruler or something to measure with, and a sheet of printed paper like a book or a magazine. And your parents' permission. Always. My dad said yes. All right, here we are in the telescope building facility, which is the guest room of our apartment. What we have here are two magnifying glasses that we picked up like from a dollar store. They don't have to be super fancy or anything like that. We have a cardboard tube. Ours is from a toilet paper roll. Oops. <laughs> We've got duct tape. We've got scissors, a tape measure, and a piece of paper that we were going to recycle anyways. Like ours has old music on it. So just get a piece of paper that you can use for this experiment. All right. Now, Meredith, I'm going to just sort of like talk you through these instructions, which once again are available in the show notes. And you're going to build the thing, okay? Okay. <laughs> All right, so step one, get the two magnifying glasses and the sheet of paper. You've got those. Okay. Good. Now, hold one magnifying glass, uh, the bigger one, between you. So I guess we should mention that. If you can get two different size magnifying glasses, that's good. Hold the bigger one between you and the paper, all right? Okay. Now, the image of the print will look a little blurry. It does. Okay, good. So place the second magnifying glass between your eye and the first magnifying glass. Okay. Now move the second glass forward or backward until the print comes into sharp focus. And then, uh, you know, you'll notice that the print appears larger and also upside down. Are you seeing that? Yeah, wow. Okay. Now it says, have a friend measure the distance between the two magnifying glasses and write the distance down. I'm the friend. So, our distance looks like it's about, it's about, uh, I'd say 2.25 inches, okay? So we'll say 2.25 inches. Okay. All right. Now it says to cut a slot in the cardboard tube near the front opening about an inch or 2.5 centimeters away. Do not cut all the way through the tube. Mm, I hope our toilet paper tube is long enough here. The slot should be able to hold the large magnifying glass. So you're cutting a slot in the cardboard tube that will hold the large magnifying glass. Okay. It can be a little less than one inch. Okay, she's cutting that. Now cut a second slot in that little tubey, the same distance from the first slot as the distance your friend wrote down. So from here, let's measure it. Okay. All right, so from that first slot, we're going to... Measure uh, 2.25 inches. Okay. So make it right there. All right. All right. So she's cutting that. Now it says, place the two magnifying glasses in their slots. So I guess, yeah, we, we should mention this. Uh, we didn't cut all the way through the tubes. We just kind of like cut enough to put the 
magnifying glasses in there so they don't, you know, you're not cutting the tube fully apart. Okay. Okay. Leave about um, one inch or, or half an inch, maybe, of tube behind the small magnifying glass, and then it says cut off any excess tube remaining. There's no excess for we, us because we use a tiny little tube. Yes, we have we have very little tube excess. All right, now all we do is we check to see if it works. So look look at the paper again. Ooh, look, Bry. Oh, that's cool. That's very cool. Now it says you have to play slightly to get the exact distance between the uh, between the magnifying glass, the telescopes that the telescope you just created, and the paper to to make it come into focus. So we were kind of doing that naturally, but if it doesn't appear in focus right away, you know, sort of. Play with the length between your telescope and the paper. And guess what? You just built a simple refracting telescope. So there you go. That was pretty fun. So cool. Wait, well, when do I use the duct tape? Oh, wait. <laughs> we forgot about the duct tape. Um, I'm reading back through the instructions. Okay, I see what I did here. When you put the magnifying glasses in the slots, you're supposed to you're supposed to duct tape them there. So okay. They, okay, we've just been holding them in. Well, the reason I'm asking is because I have space themed duct tape. Yeah, it has stars on it. It's true. It's got like a background nebula. Okay. Well, you know, this has been enlightening. You know, you see, you you do these things, you experiment, you make a few mistakes. Maybe your tube isn't quite long enough. Maybe you forget about the duct tape. I'm gonna wrap my whole thing in duct tape because I like it. Duct tape time, duct tape time. Here it comes. It's duct tape time. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, while Meredith is duct taping that, um, just remember to check out the show notes. Maybe listen to this backwards so you can anticipate all the mistakes that we've made. But and remember, making mistakes is part of the learning process. That's so true. That's so true. A lot of our guests on Reach have said that. So if you make a mistake, no big deal. And there we have it, our own telescope. I think I might patent this thing. Yeah, I don't think you can do that. At our, we didn't invent it. But hey, listeners, as always, make sure to get your parents' permission before building telescopes designed to help you find the world's next interstellar discovery. And send us a photo of your telescope. Just email reachthepodcast at gmail.com or tag us on Twitter or Instagram at reachthepodcast. I can almost see Mercury with this thing. Oh, never mind. Just missed him. You know, Brian, we've had the chance to talk to so many experts and scientists, but one thing I really learned is that when you're exploring space, sometimes things don't go as planned. And when the flight plan changes, you have to work together to solve problems as a team. I really liked listening to that interview and thinking about going into space with you and being right next to you for for that long. I mean, right now we're right next to each other in this tiny little booth, and it's pretty hot. Yeah. But the thing about space is that it's always really cold, so maybe that would balance things out. As long as we had somewhere separate to go to the bathroom. Yes, I I would insist on separate potties. But you know, I really had fun building that telescope this week, too. Yeah, for additional online resources on how to build your own telescope, check out our show notes. As always, we want to acknowledge that not everyone has access to computers or the internet. And if you're not able to get online, many local libraries offer publicly available internet access. Thanks for joining us for Reach, a space podcast for kids. We're your hosts, Meredith Stepien and Brian Holden. This episode of Reach was written by Sandy Marshall with Nate DeFort, Meredith Stepien, and Brian Holden. 
Reach is produced by Nate DeFort and Sandy Marshall, who's a solar system ambassador for NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory, and edited by Nate DeFort. Our theme song and additional music was composed by Jesse Case. Our logo was created by Stephen Lyons. And we'd like to offer a very special thanks to Shannon Wetzel, curator at the Cosmosphere International Science Center and Space Museum, which is the only place in the Midwest where you can see flown spacecrafts from all three early spaceflight programs. Discover more at Cosmo.org. Mercury was voiced by the amazing Dan Sachs. Dan is a musician and music educator, as well as the host and producer of Noodle Loaf, a popular music education podcast for kids and grown-ups alike. Noodle Loaf is available on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also find Dan's latest book entitled Families Belong at NoodleLoaf.com or wherever books are sold. And as always, a big group high five to our Reach Learning community for the fantastic questions and ideas. Thanks to Blythe and Merrick. You can hear Blythe on the podcast Unspookable, giving her take on the origins of urban legends and scary stories. And you can listen to Merrick weekly on the Hello Family podcast, available wherever you get your podcasts. Do you have a question about space that's been on your mind? Do tell. Our bi-weekly segment entitled Reaching Out is our chance to answer your questions. Tune in to Reaching Out next week to find out how you can be featured in an upcoming episode. Hey, Brian, did you know that gravity on Mars is one-third the gravity on Earth? I could literally jump three times as far. If you're enjoying Reach, be sure to tell your friends and leave us a rating and review on your podcast player of choice. Or share an episode on social media. And if you'd like to find us online, visit at Reach the Podcast on Twitter and Instagram or on our website at ReachThePodcast.com. Reach is a production of Soundsington Media, committed to making quality programming for young audiences and the young at heart. For more information on our shows and the people behind them, go to SoundsingtonMedia.com. Brian? Sorry, SoundsingtonMedia.com, over. Thank you, over. Have you ever wished that you had a direct line to your pediatrician to ask all the questions that constantly crop up while parenting? We sure have. That's why we launched the Bites of Health podcast. Every morning, we'll answer a commonly asked pediatric question in five minutes or less. You can tune in while you're making your second cup of coffee or from the school drop-off line. So be sure to tune in to Bites of Health, streaming now.